Between Luke and Acts, Luke will actually be the writer of the most material in all the New Testament. We tend to look at Paul and think, well, you know, between Romans and First and Second Corinthians, I mean, come on, you know, surely Paul was the guy who wrote the most of the New Testament. Actually, he didn't, was Luke. And what's interesting about this morning's passage in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18, uh, Luke, back in verse 17, was the feeding of the 5,000. And Luke immediately goes from the feeding of the 5,000 to this account in which Jesus is praying with his disciples alone and asks them that great question, who do you think I am? And you would think that since Luke has written all of that, that he would contain all the information. Uh, the fact of the matter is that between the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus' question to his disciples, there are a lot of things that occur. We're not going to go through them all this morning. Uh, but if you're interested, Matthew 14 through Matthew 16, two entire chapters, contain a whole bunch of stuff that all happens between this moment. Jesus is, as I mentioned before, winding down his Galilean ministry. And so, as he feeds the 5,000, he sends the disciples back to Capernaum, and he goes up on the mountain alone to pray, sends the crowd away, will come down off the mountain, and will actually walk across the water. This is the deal where he's making like he's going to walk by them, and they think they see a ghost, and Peter's like, well, if it's really you, Lord, then get me out of the boat. And he gets out of the boat. That's where that event occurs. Luke doesn't mention any of that. And then Jesus will head to the northern part of Israel. He'll head up that direction. And a variety of things will happen there that uh, we're not going to go over. Uh, Luke, by the Spirit of God, has decided that he's going to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Now, you, you know, you, you'd think that that would not be that difficult a question to answer. And Luke has given us a variety of things, going back to chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1 when the angel showed up and speaks and says that Jesus is going to be the Christ and the Son of God. And chapter 2, it appears to Mary. And all of these things happen so that they will know who Jesus is. But when the moment actually comes, they it's not until God reveals it to them. John, you remember, ends his gospel with, if all the mighty, all the other things which Jesus did were written in detail, I'm not sure all the books in the world would contain them all. So Luke skips a bunch of that stuff to get around to this particular issue. It is important to recognize that by now, they have made their way up into the northern area, up into even more Gentile area. Uh, Galilee is already pretty Gentile. They're even further north than that. And they finally have actually gotten alone. Jesus has tried for some time to get his disciples alone, and he has now accomplished that. And so here we are. Here's, here's the setting. They finally made it to where they're alone. They're in Caesarea Philippi, which is way up in the northern part of Israel, almost as far north in Israel as you can get. And they are now alone. And Luke, in verse 18, picks it up here. It happened that Jesus was praying alone. The disciples were with him, but none of them were praying. Now, we could spend the whole morning on just this verse. I'm not going to, but we could. You look at this verse and think, really? Seriously, guys? You are the apostles. 
You were the 12 guys who've gone out and Jesus gave you the ability to perform all of those great miracles. You've been out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. You have watched Jesus pray on a number of occasions. You have seen the power of prayer. And here Jesus is over here praying all by himself. What are you guys doing? Who knows what they're doing? I don't, it's, who knows? It's like Wednesday night prayer meeting, right? Where is everybody? No one knows. Where are they, right? Uh, when it actually comes time to start praying, everybody's like, oh. And so if you feel, you know, you don't come to Wednesday night, don't feel bad, the apostles say, Jesus is over there praying. You'd think they would go to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now they will, eventually, but not at this moment. That's not going to happen until chapter 11, we're only in chapter 9. So Jesus is this great example of prayer. I'm sure that, because we know as we read the accounts, that he lifts up his eyes. He's probably on his knees. He's lifted up his eyes, and he's, he's speaking to God. But he's over there all by himself. He's the only one praying. They've heard the Sermon on the Mount, right? Remember the Sermon on the Mount? This is prior to this by some. And it's like, pray for those who persecute you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites because uh, they love to pray standing in the synagogues. Everyone can see them. Don't do that. In fact, we're out here all by ourselves. And Jesus is not just praying to put on a show here. He's actually praying because he wants to talk to his heavenly Father. So when you pray... It's okay to go into a quiet place. You don't have to do this. Just you know, Jesus is not out here on the street corner going, look at how great I am. No, he's out here alone with his disciples. And by the way, when you pray, don't use meaningless repetitions, which I'm sure Jesus is not using. It doesn't really matter. They are still not over there praying with him. Now, what's interesting is it will grow on them. As the accounts unfold, as, as the life moves on, by the time we get to the day of Pentecost, well, Jesus isn't around anymore. It's just them. What are they doing on the day of Pentecost? All 120 of them over there in that upper room. Well, we know exactly what they're doing, right? They're up there praying. Why? Well, because they finally learned the lesson. Not to mention, they're now the people in charge, and so they really need the power of God, and it occurs to them that, you know, prayer is actually the way to get the power of God. So they're in the upper room praying, and they do, by the way, greatly get the power of God. So now, Jesus, praying with them, or praying by himself, uh, the disciples were with him, and he's now done praying, We can assume that what he's praying is that the question he is about to ask them, that God will actually enlighten them so that they can give the correct answer. It doesn't say that, but it's not an unreasonable thing to think. So Jesus goes to them. Now, he's done praying, and he's got a question for them. Who does everyone say that I am? Now, this is a, this is a pretty easy question. This is non-controversial. Jesus is simply taking an opinion poll here. What's your opinion and everybody else's opinion? What, who does everybody think I am? Now, the answer, of course, is that while some think that you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, some think you're one of the other prophets, Isaiah, who knows. Somebody, everybody just kind of thinks that you're a man of God. That's what everybody thinks. Now, if that is true, if this is, in fact, the answer to this question, that Jesus is one of the prophets, well then Jesus is an amazing guy. He's part of a very elite group of people. 
but he's not completely unique. He's just another one of the Old Testament prophets. There were lots of them. Uh, the 12 minor prophets, just to rip those off, you know. They're, they're, there's a whole pile of Old Testament prophets. And if Jesus is just one of them, well, then you can have the people who say, we are of Moses, he was the greatest guy. Well, they, if Jesus is just another prophet, they can still be of Moses. Oh, you're of Jesus, we're of Moses. And we can have our big discussion here as to who's who and, and who's really the more important. But really, when it's all said and done, we can just continue to be disciples of Moses because, well, there are a lot of prophets and we like Moses. And then there's the group that's like, well, yes, there's Moses, but there's a whole pile of other prophets. Yeah, good for you guys. By the way, the Moses-only group were the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The everybody group were the Pharisees. And so if you're just going to add Jesus into the pile, then you're not really breaking new ground. You're not really saying anything revolutionary. You're not really turning the world upside down. And Jesus needs to turn the world upside down. But he needs his disciples to give him some feedback here. Who do people say I am? This is a, it's easy to answer. It's the crowd. The crowd says this, you know, survey says, I mean, we all know how that goes. And as long as you're in the majority, as long as you're in that group of people who have more or less all gotten together and they have decided that, well, it's safe to say that Jesus is one of the prophets. Won't require too much. We can still be Jews. We can still be part of the nation of Israel. We can still maintain our reliance on Moses and all of that and just kind of Jesus plus. He just becomes one more prophet. Well, that's not going to do because that's not who Jesus is. Jesus needs his disciples to be leaders. You guys, the disciples, need to become leaders in an entirely new approach to God. We are going to move from the old covenant to the new covenant. And the new covenant is as we know, going to be at the Last Supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. You know, that is the new covenant. Jesus is going to institute an entirely new relationship between God and men. And he needs his disciples to recognize that this is not just same old, same old. Jesus is not just one more prophet. This is not God just one more time warning Israel and giving them another chance to actually repent. This is not that. This is something else. And so Jesus follows up with that. All right, that's who everybody says I am. Now, now the question, who do you say I am? That's what everybody else thinks. We all know what everybody else thinks. Everybody thinks I'm just one of the prophets. Maybe I'm John the Baptist, Rose from the Dead. Maybe I'm Elijah. Maybe I'm who in the world knows who. Who do you think I am? In chapter 1, the angel speaks to Mary and says, all right, you're going to give birth to the Son of the Most High. You are going to give birth to the King, to the very Son of God. In chapter 2, the angels appear to the shepherds and say, unto you is born this day in the city of David a, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, right? You'd think this would not require a whole lot to connect these dots together. Luke has been telling us this, as well as, if you're reading them, Matthew, Mark, and John, Jesus is the Christ. You wouldn't think it would require a whole lot, but the fact is, when Peter says, 
I know who you are. You are the Messiah of God. You're the actual Messiah. That is a pretty revolutionary statement. Jesus will reply to Peter in Matthew's gospel. He will say, blessed are you, Simon Barjonas, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Despite all of the miracles, despite all of the message, all of the preaching, all of the teaching, all of the people who have all spoken and you've heard it, the only way you actually connected all of these dots is because God allowed you to. Otherwise, you wouldn't have. You didn't just figure this out, Simon. It's important to notice. So this is a huge step forward now. They know something that no one else knows. The whole crowd, everyone who's watching Jesus and paying attention and listening to what he's saying, and doing, they're all over there still thinking that, well, he's clearly speaking for God. I mean, look at him. He gives sight to the blind and he makes the lame walk and he, and he preaches and he's clearly a prophet. Is he the Messiah? Uh, yeah, no, I don't know. He's actually the Messiah. I mean, come on, that's a pretty big, that's a big step. Hmm. These guys have finally figured it out. We know who you are. You are the actual Messiah. Yeah. And, of course, Jesus will confirm that. That is correct. Jesus will tell them that that's correct. And then he tells them, don't tell anybody. We just figured it out. What do you mean don't tell anybody? Why shouldn't we tell anybody? Well, because... If you start telling people, you're ahead of the curve, you're ahead of everyone else, you're good, you're out front, you you got the leadership going here, you have figured out that Jesus is the Messiah, but now you're going to have to be quiet about it. Why? Because there's more. Yes, you have made it where you need to make it thus far, but there is more. In fact, you are shortly going to hear more. You're not going to want to hear the more, but you need to hear more. You can imagine at this moment that they're all kind of got big grins on their face, right? He's the Messiah. I knew it. I knew that. I I just, I knew. I knew that. Look at that. You know, isn't this great? We now know who the Messiah is. It is just going to be fantastic. We, here it comes. We are going to finally finally have this amazing victory we are we are going the world is going to be a transformed place it, we have struggled and and had all of these things happen to us but now we are going to finally see the transforming power of god for the whole nation this is going to be fantastic I mean, any minute now, the lions are going to lay down with the lambs and the desert is going to blossom like a rose and the nations are going to just come bow at our feet. It's going to be fantastic. I want to read to you just just one passage. There are many, many, many of them, but I want to read to you just one passage that it's very likely went through their minds. This is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. If you are an Old Testament Israelite, just listen to this. This is the Messiah. This is what's going to happen when the Messiah shows up. So when Jesus tells them, you know, Peter's like, you're the Messiah. Chances are very good. This is the exact kind of passage that went through their mind. 
Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So far, so good. That's Jesus all the way. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And his mouth will strike the earth with a rod. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Now we're kind of like, wait a minute, I haven't really seen that happening just yet. Not yet. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child, just a little kid, will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people. All those from Assyria and Egypt and Pathos and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Any minute now. And this is, these are the kinds of passages that, well, this is what it means when the Messiah comes. I mean, there it is right there. It's in the Bible. It's, it's Isaiah. Phew, we finally made it. Can you, I'm just waiting for the kingdom to just come, you know, here it is. The king is in our presence. We all know the rest of the story, right? Jesus says to them, don't tell anyone. Why? Because there, he's going to right here mention four things that are going to happen to him. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. First, I have to suffer. I'm going to have to suffer many things. It doesn't state exactly what they all are, but you just need to keep reading the account, and you will see that Jesus, in fact, suffers many things. He, He is rejected and persecuted and goes through this horrible ordeal of this unjust trial in which he's clearly innocent and yet they will find him guilty and he will suffer many things. They will beat him and mock him and spit on him and he will endure it. The religious leadership will completely reject him. The elders, the chief priests and the scribes are the three groups that make up the Sanhedrin. These are the leaders of the nation. So Maybe there are some people who like Jesus and appreciate his ministry, but the leadership of the nation will completely reject him. They will not acknowledge him as their Messiah. They will not acknowledge him as the one that God has sent. They won't even acknowledge him as a prophet. They won't acknowledge him at all. They will completely reject him. And then he'll be killed. But don't worry, he'll raise from the dead. 
Now, Peter hears this, right? And, and what we go to the book of Mark, and, and Peter, as he states the matter plainly, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, this isn't going to happen to you. You're not going up to Jerusalem and getting killed. What are you talking about? This is not how this goes. Dear Peter, you know, you look at the guy and you think, I wonder when I pray just how often I get around to telling God what he ought to and ought not to do and uh, sound just like Peter. Peter actually takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. No, you're not going up to Jerusalem. You are not going to be turned over to the authorities and they're not going to kill you and that's that's not going to happen. Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. You just want to think that this is all going to work out great for you. You just want to see your prosperity, your victory. You want to see it work out well for you. Well, this is not going to happen, this go around. Now, those passages will come to pass. They will, but not with the disciples. They're not going to see this great victory. They're not going to see the nations all come to them and and bow down and worship Jesus as the Messiah. They're not going to see that happen. What they are going to see is Jesus, just like he said, go down and be arrested by the authorities and crucified and killed. Jesus is trying to help his followers lead in this world. And the question is, does our theology allow us to suffer? No one wants to. No one's in a big hurry. Oh boy, let's go be persecuted. No one wants to be persecuted, but the question is, when persecution comes, when difficulty comes, when hardship comes, are we able to see that as all part of the hand of God? Jesus is very clear that this is what's going to happen to him. He knows that's what's going to happen to him. And he will willingly walk into it. This is all part of the gospel message. It's not a mistake that Jesus got crucified. It's not like Jesus didn't quite figure out exactly how this was all going to go and thought for sure that if he just stood up and said the right thing, well, the Sanhedrin would repent and they'd all like him and, you know, it'd all go good. And then, ah, I can hardly believe it. Look what happened. No, no. Jesus knew exactly how this was going to happen and spells it out clearly for his disciples. They need to be aware. And of course, once they actually are aware, how do they react? Peter takes Jesus aside and says, this isn't going to happen. We often think, wouldn't it be nice to just have a moment where God would appear to me, a dream or somewhere, and I could just ask God a couple of questions. Are you sure? The folks for whom that happens say generally are not happy with what God has to tell them. And you think that you want to know. But the fact is that in this world of sin, we are probably going to face a few more challenges than we really want to know about before they get here. And when they get here, God gives us the grace. Peter will get through this. There'll be some real dark days. And you would think that when these events transpire, that Peter would recall this conversation and go, okay, this is really hard to watch, but he did say it was coming. Nah. The two guys on the Emmaus Road, right? They're walking along and they're real sad. And Jesus, unbeknownst to them, walks up to them. He's like, 
are you guys so sad about? Oh, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, this great prophet that we thought for sure was the Messiah. We, we, we were positive he was going to rescue us at. He died. We, just, we, can't, it doesn't, we can't figure it out. It doesn't make sense. Really? He told you right here. I mean, he made this as plain as it could possibly be. And yet, when we go through this life, and if it should occur, that hardships and difficulties come our way, it's not somehow God not paying attention or like, oh, well, that can't be part of the plan. Actually, it can be. Jesus is revealing to his disciples exactly how this is going to go. And they initially think, oh, health, wealth, and prosperity. Boy, here it comes. Can't wait. Jesus reveals to them that that is not going to be your lot. It is going to be persecution and difficulty and hardship. But that's okay. God will be in the midst of all that too. When, it, when Jesus is put on trial and they, and they try to give him an opportunity to avoid crucifying him and finding him guilty. Oh, no. Jesus is like, you you need an excuse to crucify me? That's okay. I'll give you one. We'll get there in Luke 22. When it was day, the council of elders and the people assembled, both the chief priests and the scribes. They lead him away to the council chamber, and they say to him, all right, if you're the Christ, tell us. He says to him, look, if I told you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you, you won't answer it. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all know he describes himself as the Son of Man. Okay, you want want an answer? Here's the answer. From now on, you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. And of course, they reply, they all said, you're the Son of God then. And he said to them, yes, I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of a testimony? We've heard it from ourselves right from his own mouth. Why did Jesus do that? Well, because he has to be crucified so he can pay for our sin. He knew exactly what their response was going to be to that question, and that's exactly what he does. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't doesn't try to get out of it. Now, we recall in the garden, as he's praying, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but thine be done. That is the plan of God. As we go through life and as challenges come at us and as difficulties come at us and hardships come at us, this is a crucial passage to remember. Just because life got hard doesn't mean God left you. doesn't mean that God somehow doesn't love you or that the hand of God has been removed from you. In fact, it's right in the midst of those very things that God most displays is grace and compassion and kindness to us. That's the time, by the way, to be praying. That is the time to be coming to God and seeking his strength and power. This is part of the plan of God, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges everyone whom he receives. If you don't, if you can sin without consequence, that that should concern you. You should just think about sinning and have your life go bad. That means God really loves you. That's just how God doesn't want us to sin. And so if we start sinning, God is going to send things into our lives that's going to make it difficult. And sometimes God just wants us to be more faithful. Sometimes for no reason. Look at Job. Job, righteous man. God allows very difficult things into his life. 
God has not left us just because life is difficult. And this is the message that Jesus is giving his disciples. They need to know this. This is essential. Now, like everyone, it takes them a while. They're going to have to internalize this. They're going to have to have this actually come to pass. Remember, Jesus could have at the Last Supper simply provided them with enough provisions and said, okay, you guys all just stay in this upper room. I'll be back come Sunday or so. You guys all just stay here. I don't want you to see the arrest in the garden. I don't want you to deny that you ever knew me. I, you, I don't, you guys can all just miss the crucifixion. It's just a terrible thing anyway. And uh, don't worry, I'll just resurrect from the dead on Sunday and then I'll show back up here and say hi. And you can dismiss it all. Oh no, oh, oh no. He takes them down to the garden. They all run for their lives. Peter denies he even knows him three times to some little girl. This is, they go through it. They watch the crucifixion. Jesus could have spared them all that. He doesn't. Because when the moment comes that they stand before the Sanhedrin and say, well, should we obey God or you guys? You tell us. Where did they get that from? The power of the Spirit of God. They've seen God at work now. But they had to go through all that to get there. So the things that you're going through, the trials that you might be facing, the hardships that might be there, those are the things that are going to ground you and give you deeper roots and cause you to trust God even more. It's in the trials that you truly see God. So don't run away from your trials. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't who in the world knows what. Don't sin to somehow escape your trials. Just trust God and stay faithful and go through them. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you willingly sent your son. You willingly allowed him and he willingly came for us. Lord, may the wonder of it never, never leave us. May we continuously be amazed of your willingness to sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that you love us, and may we live like we believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.